Well, hello, CMYK community, and welcome to another CMYK Talk podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm just so excited that you are a part of this whole thing. Uh, I don't know how much you think about it, but it's an interesting thing for me to think that we as a community, a small community, uh, continue to put out these podcasts, thoughts, and ideas, and just continue to have so many people uh, download, listen in, share, talk about, discuss the things that we're talking about here, uh, because we believe that these things matter. And we believe that this idea of intentional community, this idea of uh, wrestling through a more beautiful way for us to interact with the world, people, and stuff, it's important and it matters. And so for you to just uh, be a part of that uh, just is so meaningful. So thanks for listening into this podcast. I hope that it helps you do all of those things and uh, that you're doing well. Today, we are uh, in the midst of a series that we've been in for a couple weeks now entitled Re-Understanding Heaven and Hell. This thing that many of us have heard of before, heaven and hell, and uh, we probably have a lot of different stories and ideas and maybe theology, if you will, that goes with that. And so we as a community are kind of poking the box a little bit and asking some questions of those stories and asking, okay, what do the scriptures actually talk about and what is maybe most important for us to pull from those stories that would help us interact with the world, people and stuff around us as I said earlier, in a more beautiful way. So that's what we're up to. Before we jump into it, though, I need to mention that this coming Sunday, November 11th, we are going to only be having our morning gathering. We will not be having our evening gathering. So if for whatever reason you make it to a gathering every once in a while or the evening gathering is your place to go, uh, because it's pretty awesome, the evening crowd, uh, we are going to be taking that evening off. There's something happening at Art House that night uh, that's kind of important. And so if you want to be a part of that, head to arthousebillings.com, shameless plug, and you can get tickets for that event that's going to be taking place that evening. Uh, But just because of scheduling and and all of that stuff, some things out of our control, we need to do that at Art House on the 11th. And so we won't be able to have our CMYK gathering, but we will be there in the morning at 10.30 a.m. on the 11th. So I hope you can listen in uh, on the podcast or be a part of that morning gathering next weekend. All right. So today, in this talk podcast, we're talking about the topic of hell. And um, I got to be honest, going into this series, this for me is the talk that I've probably spent the most of my time and energy and thought trying to process and figure out, okay, how are we going to tackle this and how are we going to talk about it? Because hell is a big concept. Hell is a big picture. It's a big story maybe uh, that many of us have interacted with on one level or another. When I was a kid, hell was not even a word that I could say. It was a bad word. And so I remember uh, being a kid in elementary school and a friend of mine in school said the word hell and I was just like taken back that someone actually had the cojones to say that word. How could you? And so me and my friends in church, we'd always joke and we would never say hell, but we'd like skate on the edge of it and we'd say H-E double hockey stick. Where did that come from? Well, it came from culturally. Uh, hell was such a big, bad, awful place that you couldn't even say the word like a he who should not be named 
kind of thing, if you know what I'm talking about. I, even the word heck was something that was a little too uh, rambunctious in our home. So not only saying what the hell, like that was a really bad thing, but even saying what the heck, that was a, a bad thing because it teetered on the edge of being like hell. It was just hell light, if you will. And so we couldn't even go there. That's how big of a deal hell was in our home. And, and maybe it was a less of a deal because we couldn't talk about it. But I just knew there's this thing called hell that I can't say that word. I can't even spell it. I can't even get close to naming it because there's a there's you know punishment for me if I go there. My mom and my dad they're going to be just just so disappointed in me. On top of that, I remember the first time uh, that I experienced this really controversial thing that my parents kind of tried to shield me from uh, for a lot of years because they said it it was just uh, it wasn't for kids. But I remember experiencing it when I was a kid, and all of a sudden I started having some images of what this place called hell was, and this thing that I was supposed to be very careful with as a kid and not try to see or look at was known as Far Side, the Far Side cartoon. I don't know if you remember these at all, but oh man, they were so great as a kid. It was that was like you know culturally me teetering on the edge and and being you know a bad boy because I was reading the Far Side cartoon. I was cool, okay? So just get that image and picture in your mind. I was cool. But I remember in the Far Side cartoon, there's if you just want to Google it, you could Google Far Side Hell. And uh, you would see so many of these different uh, depictions of hell where you have the devil or you have demons and you have flames and you have people in anguish and torment. And it's always got a comedic side to it because it's a cartoon. But I remember that being my kind of first entry level introduction into what hell looked like. There's flames and there's people in anguish and torment and it wasn't fun. It wasn't awesome. And yeah, it was, there was a joke, but that was the cartoon side of things. And it became a place that I was really, really fearful of. And as I grew up, I was told that this thing called hell, this word that I couldn't say, and this place that I couldn't look at in the Far Side cartoon, it was a place that God sends people who don't accept Jesus when they die. And so, so much of my life and so much of my story, and I I assume that some of you listening to this, your story may be the same, was to make sure that I myself accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, because I didn't want to go to hell. It was that bad and that awful that I will pray this prayer, I will do these things, I will jump through these hoops, whatever I have to do, because I don't want to go there. That's how bad hell is. And that there are those in this world that are saved, ones that accept Jesus and those who are not saved. And God's only choice for those that are not saved are to send them to hell. Well, a couple weeks ago, Seth uh, talked in this podcast about that question, of who's saved, who's in, and who's out, and what does this salvation look like, and how are we supposed to go about it? So I don't want to revisit that. But what I want to do is to try and paint this picture that I think many of us have experienced is I was so fearful of I'm going to do the wrong thing, I'm going to say the wrong thing, I'm going to get this prayer salvation thing wrong, and I'm going to end up in hell. And seeing friends around me with this lens that I got to make sure that they get to a church service so they can raise their hand and something can happen so that they don't have to go to hell because I love them and I don't want them to experience eternal torment with flames and a red guy in tights with horns and a pitchfork. I don't want to see that happen. That was such a drive and a motivator for me. And so that was it. That was my story of hell. 
and it and it was continually my story of hell even into adulthood for a long long time and for to be honest for many of us this picture of hell is the only picture of hell that can be accepted infernalism is this story of hell it's what we talked about in the first week of this podcast series and the idea of abandoning or even challenging this view of hell in the afterlife for many of us we've been taught and we feel that to abandon that or to challenge that, to poke that box, is to go too far. And, you're, and you're, you're dealing with sound doctrine and the Bible in such a way that you are labeled as a heretic. For some, it's not necessarily about being a heretic, but this thing and idea of hell is such a strong thing because it's been the motivator, it's been the drive, it's been the reason why they choose to live and act the way that they do because they want to avoid hell. And so the thought of, again, challenging or potentially abandoning this idea of infernalism or that we're all going to burn if we don't accept Jesus is a really hard thing to accept because so much of their own life and choices have been driven by, okay, I don't, I don't want to end up in hell. So we do these things. And so if you take away hell, do you take away the motivation? Do you take away the ability to live a good and decent life if you go down that path? So for many of us, hell is a story that we were handed. And it's a story that, that it's very, very uncomfortable to go down the path that we're about to go down today. It's very, very uncomfortable to poke the box and to challenge in the question and to wonder, okay, what is hell? And is there a way to re-understand this? And so what I want to do with this talk is, and and I'm going to try to do it as quick as we can, but to just look at this word hell in the Bible and to ask the question, okay, where, where does this come from? And is, are these pictures and stories and ideas that we hold of hell, is it something that the scriptures actually talk about? Or is there something else that's potentially influencing these stories that we have and why they're so, so connected to our spiritual DNA for many of us? So here we go. So many of us know that the Bible is split up into two kind of major groupings or sections. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. And the Old Testament, you guessed it, are the older texts. It's a, group, it's a grouping of scriptures that come from the Hebrews, the Jewish people. And it's written in the language of Hebrew. And within that language, we find there's this word Sheol. And Sheol means a dark or mysterious place where people go when they die. And that's what that word means. So you have this word all over the place within the Old Testament that there are references to people going somewhere when they die, and it's always this dark, mysterious place, and we don't know much about it. And we don't know who goes there and who doesn't go there. There aren't clear lines drawn in the sand, but there are moments when certain people are swallowed up into this place. Some some people die and they go to this place. It's just this word that's used to describe things like the depths or the pit, the grave, the realm of of the dead. That's what we have. But there's no clear specific image or defined understanding for what it is. There's also a couple references within the Old Testament of people going to this place where someone dies and going there to try and be with or rescue or find that person. So you have like in 2 Samuel chapter 12, this guy named King David, he has a son, a child who's about to die. And so there's references in the text that King David is going to go where the child goes when the child dies. He's going to go there with him. What does that mean? We don't know, (laughs) but it's in the text. This is what we have of the idea and the picture of hell, Sheol, the depths, the pit, the grave, the realm of the dead. 
And it's not clear. The way Rob Bell puts it in his book, Love Wins, he says, for whatever reason, the precise details of who goes where, when, how, with what, and for how long simply aren't things the Hebrew writers were terribly concerned with. In other words, painting this clear picture is not something the scriptures do or the writers are trying to make happen for us in our reading of the text. In in other words, there's something else that they're trying to communicate and talk about when it comes to Sheol or the depths, the pit, the grave, the realm of the dead. Something else is going on with the text other than what we've made it to be because it doesn't define or clearly paint a picture like we've made it to be. It simply talks about this dark, mysterious place that people go when they die. So that's the Old Testament. That's what we got. And then we go to the New Testament, and things get a little more interesting, but honestly, not much more helpful, because the word hell is used roughly 12 times in the whole New Testament. The New Testament is where we find the story of Jesus, the Gospels. And Jesus is the one who almost exclusively uses this word hell. And here's what's so fascinating about this use of the word hell that Jesus uses over and over and over again. It's a compound word, and it's a word, Gehenna. And this compound word has two parts. There's Gi, or valley, and Henna, which is Hamon, or the valley of Hamon. And so all of a sudden, you have this word, Gehenna, that's translated hell, that is simply and literally meaning the valley of Hamon. It was a literal place. And it was known as where trash was sent, and there was a constant burning fire there. It was on the edge of the city, and it was the place where everybody sent their garbage. It was the city dump. And so Jesus is using this word Gehenna, and in using this word, there's this visual, literal, physical place that everybody all of a sudden has in their brain. And it's not a place where you want to go. It's not a place where you want to spend a lot of time. And Jesus is talking about this over and over and over again as a destination for someone's life. The idea would be me talking about, hey, you could go and hang out at the dump. And if you ever hang, hung out at the dump, particularly if you've ever driven all the way up to the top where the giant, giant you know, tractors and garbage movers are working, it smells, it's stinky, the ground is really, really soft because you're standing on lots and lots of garbage, it's just gross, and you want to get out of there quick, it's not fun. And Jesus is talking about a place like that times a thousand, because this is an ancient culture where everything went to this place, and there was a consistent fire. Things were on fire there that continued to burn and burn and burn and burn. You could say that there were eternal flames. On top of that, it was a place, this Gehenna, Valley of Hermon, city dump, where animals would fight over scraps of food. There was gnashing of teeth. These are the feelings, emotions, and pictures that would come to people's mind when Jesus is talking about this idea of hell. So maybe, and again, this might be challenging for some, maybe rather than Jesus talking about this image of hell that many of us carry, again, flames everywhere, we are in eternal torment on fire and there's a red dude in spandex uh, coming after us, that kind of thing. Maybe hell is more of this physical illustration that Jesus is using to talk about something here and now. 
What I find fascinating is that many of us use the same kind of images and words to talk about our lives here and now. How many of us have used the phrase that our life is in the pits? Or we look at someone else's life and we're just, man, it seems like things are just always on fire in their life. That we feel like we're down in the dumps or we have trashed our lives, trashed our family. We've trashed a relationship. These are the same images and ideas that Jesus is presenting in the scriptures. On top of that, this Gehenna, this Valley of Hamon, it's mentioned in the Old Testament as well. And when it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it's again a physical place, but it's a place where child sacrifice takes place. So even in the Old Testament, this Gehenna is is seen as a place where the unthinkable is happening. It's not a place that you want to be. It's not a place that you want to find your life doing those kinds of activities. This is the image and the language around this word Gehenna. So it makes sense that Jesus would reference this place, this idea to his Jewish listeners that not only saw it as a garbage dump, but a place where the unthinkable happens. So hell for Jesus was not some place that you might go when you die. It was a very real place that you could find your life here and now. And just as we create dumps by throwing our trash in a certain place over and over and over again, we can create a kind of life where it's not good. It's not where we want to be. It's uncomfortable. It just is and feels wrong. That there are things that bring destruction and there are things that bring life. And to live a life of destruction is to find your life in the pits, the dump, hell. And it's to make a mess of things. So all of a sudden, to understand this word and understand what Jesus is actually talking about, it brings new light and meaning to these texts that many of us have potentially read or heard before, like texts in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is inviting us into life and a life that is not found in this pits. That the message of Christ was not some apocalyptic story like we've made it out to be. I love the way Andre Hardin says it. He says, Jesus was pulling people out of the dump and steering them away from the path that leads back. So this is kind of the strongest language we have from Jesus around this word hell. In the New Testament, there are two other words that are sometimes translated to hell or reference this idea. One is Tataris, which is a Greek word that's speaking of the underworld where Greek demigods were judged in the abyss. It's a Greek idea. And the New Testament comes from Greco-Roman culture in the world. 
And what we see is this word Tartarus is only used once, and it's in Second Peter, and he's talking about a very similar idea, Greek demigods uh, being judged. It's a place where they go. And in Second Peter, he's using it to talk about God placing angels there for judgment. So he's referencing this Greek idea to talk about angels, okay? The other word that we have is Hades. And Hades is another word that many of us have interacted with when we just think about hell and this image and story that many of us carry. But again, this is a Greek word, and it's the Greek word that's equivalent to the Hebrew word of Sheol. So it's the pits. It's known as the depths or the grave, the realm of the dead. But again, there's no specific image or language brought to what this actually looks like. So the scriptures are doing something different if we look honestly at what this, these words that we reference as hell as, doing something different than painting the picture that many of us have grown up with. Which leads me to the question, so why have we made it into the story that we all know? Why is this idea of infernalism and you better do these things or God is going to send you to eternal torment in hell? Why is it such a strong narrative and why does it have such a grip on our culture and our theology? And when it comes to that, I think that there's a couple things that many of us probably know and have experienced when it comes to this picture of infernalism. First and foremost, a picture of infernalism, it's very imaginative. It just grabs our imagination. So you have stories throughout history like Dante's Inferno that just cause our brains to spin. And and obviously, imaginative stories are something that we grab onto and we share over and over and over again. So stories like Harry Potter, stories like Star Wars, these kinds of stories, they cause us to share them over and over and over again. It grips our heart. But on top of that, more than just being imaginative, this story that many of us have of hell, it's a motivating story. It's something that if you want to get a group of people to act a certain way, you got to find not only an imaginative story, but a motivating one. And so many of us have this thing like Catholic guilt that's a strong part of our lives because we don't want to do the wrong things. We want to do the right things and not end up in hell. So we have a history within the church and within religion that it's one of the reasons some of us really struggle with church and religion is because all of a sudden there is this motivator behind someone telling everyone else, you've got to live this certain way. My ideals are the only way to live. My way of thinking, my theology, my beliefs are the only way. And to step outside of this way of thinking and belief is to find yourself in this eternal torment. So it's a motivating thing to get large groups of people, and it's it's still a thing to get large groups of people to believe a certain way, to act a certain way. So it's a very motivating, controlling kind of way to move people. On top of that, infernalism is something that we continue to see as a strong narrative in our culture because it's very retributive. In other words, If someone does something wrong and they harm or hurt us, there's a part of us in our human psyche that wants to see that person paid back for the wrong that they were dealt. And so to think that the people that we don't like, the people on the outside, the people that disagree with us, that they're going to get their due justice through this eternal torment— that's a that's something that I can grab onto, is it not? Is it not something to think like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna spend eternity in hell? And and I'm not just saying someone that you know cut us off in traffic necessarily, but to think of people like Hitler, people that have done horrible, horrible, horrible things. It's a calming, 
unnerving thing to think, oh, they're going to get the due penalty for their sins. And so we can grab onto that. So of course, this narrative of infernalism is something that we grab onto. And last but not least, I think that it's something that's so strong in our culture because it's very assuring. We all want to know that we're on the right team. We're on the right side. And everybody else that thinks or believes differently than us is on the wrong side. And so to feel like I can pray a prayer or find my salvation, and all of a sudden I have this fire insurance that I know I'm in the right. And so if something happens to me, if I get in a car accident or the, the, the most horrible thing happens and I'm no longer here, I know that I'm good. I know that I'm fine. I know that I picked the right side. And so it's something, again, that we see over and over and over again in our culture, that hell is this motivator to say, okay, I know that I've prayed the prayer, I've done the thing, I've given the money, whatever it is, and now I'm good so I can sleep at night. But the question for me, has these are the, the strong uh, reasons why this narrative is, is such a significant thing in our culture? And this picture that many of us hold for hell is something that we so strongly hold on to. The question for me is, are these the things that we see Jesus using behind his message and his story? In other words, does, do we see Jesus speaking to and communicating this imaginative story of pain and torture for eternity? And that was what Jesus did. Do we see Jesus perform miracles? And the miracles that he performed were to introduce pain and torture into people's lives. And that's how Jesus grabbed people's attention by being imaginative with pain and torture. No, <laughs> we see Jesus perform miracles of healing. We see Jesus perform miracles of forgiveness and grace and offering people a second, third, fourth chance. Do we see Jesus motivate through guilt? No, the story of Christ is one that is motivating, yes, but it's motivating through grace, peace, and love, not through do this or else. Do we see Jesus be retributive? In other words, he's always trying to give people the due punishment coming their way. No. We see the story of Jesus being one where he took on punishment. He didn't deal it out. Do we see Jesus being interested in getting people to sleep better at night because they know where they're going to go when they die? No. We don't see Jesus have that conversation at all. What we see Jesus do over and over and over again is invite people to live differently here and now and to see that there are consequences or there are creations that come from the choices that they make and the way that they choose to see themselves and the world around them and how they interact with that. So what is the point of hell? Why would the scriptures use this language of Sheol or Hades or hell, Gehenna, over and over and over again? Why would it be there if it's not this picture or the story that many of us grew up with. And for me, there's one story that I find um, to be incredibly helpful uh, personally. It's a story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, and it's really one of the <clears throat> clearest pictures we have of someone in hell or Hades that Jesus ever tells. And it's this story that deals with a rich man and Lazarus. And this is how the story goes. Luke chapter 16, starting verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, Lazarus, and he was covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Again, here's a picture, one of the clearest pictures we have of someone in hell or Hades. But Abraham responded to him and said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in a like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. He said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, they will change their ways. In verse 31, Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this is, I think, a powerful story that there's just a couple observations I would make from it. First and foremost, this story points to how the rich man saw himself as better than Lazarus throughout his life. Lazarus was in the dumps, and the rich man was in the right. And the rich man never saw Lazarus as someone that he would serve and help. Because what's subtly happening in the text is that the rich man is better. He's on a different class. He's on a different level. And here in Hades and here in hell, this rich man continues to hold this same idea. Because what does he ask of Abraham? That Lazarus come and give him a drink. In other words, the rich man still sees himself as better and that Lazarus should serve him, should aid him now. So there's something really subtle but profound happening here, that there's something fundamentally broken about how this rich man sees himself and how he sees his neighbor, that particularly his neighbor in need is someone that is less than him. And even being in anguish, even being in Hades, it doesn't change this. He still sees this separation and this difference between himself and Lazarus, and that Lazarus is less than and he is better. It's important to note. And it's important to note because where this leads is that Abraham says that Lazarus cannot cross this expanse between the two places and cannot find himself in Hades, and that the rich man cannot find himself next to Abraham with 
Lazarus, that there's this giant gap and this giant expanse. And what is this expanse? That Abraham says, you can't travel back and forth from here to there. In other words, this place that the rich man finds himself as one that is better than his neighbor, one that is better than someone that's in need around him, is not something that is easily crossed, is not something that is easily changed or made different in someone's heart or in someone's life. It's not just a quick, okay, now you're better and now you did it. But there's this grueling, long gap of a work to find yourself in a place where the rich man would no longer see himself as better than someone in need. The reason I find this so fascinating is for many of us, We've been told that this idea of salvation, this idea of being someone that follows Christ, it's found primarily in a prayer. It's found primarily in a one-time decision that you make for Jesus, and then all is good. It's easy. And so all you got to do is bow your heads, close your eyes, and say this prayer. All you got to do is look up. All you got to do is raise your hand. All you got to do is read your Bible, whatever it is, that it's this easy thing, and then you know that you're good. But what Jesus is talking about is something that is far more difficult and far more of a long, treacherous path to go from someone that sees your neighbor and sees others in need as less than to a place where you find yourself on the same page in the same place as everyone and that you find your life as one that is there to serve your neighbor, one that is to see yourself as the same as your neighbor, to care for the needs of those around you. This, for someone that continually sees yourself as better than others, is a long, hard path. For Jesus, there's a giant work of following him and learning to see and interact with the world differently than how many of us naturally might want to do it. It's why he tells this story in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, there are those that see everyone everyone on the same page and on the same level and are doing the work and living the life of caring for the needs of those around them, seeing their neighbor and rather than seeing yourself as better and continuing to pass by them, stopping, changing your life, disrupting yourself for the sake of those around you. Jesus goes on and he said, then he will say to those to his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison? And we did not minister to you. Then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you, 
as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is inviting his whole thing on so many levels. He's inviting anybody who has ears to hear, to learn to see the world and people around them as significant, important, and worthy of your sacrifice and work to care for and to serve, and to not find your life as better than them. And this is a radical and dramatic shift for how we, I, see all of humanity and the world around me, because I continually find myself wanting to place myself on a higher standard, on a better playing field, and say, I'm better than them because of this, 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 and this, and this, and I do these things, and they don't do these things, and it's their fault, and it's their reason, rather than doing the work that Christ is asking us, asking me to do, to not play that game, and to see myself on the same page and plane. This is not just a prayer that Jesus is asking for me. This is not just a punch list of do's and don'ts. This is a radical shift in how I see myself and everyone, my neighbors around me. To not see the world and others the way that Jesus invites us to see is to create and experience hell. That's the power of this story. This man continues, this rich man in the story of Jesus the rich man in Lazarus, is a story of someone that continues to see himself as better than Lazarus. And because of that, he is in this continual anguish. And because of that, he will not be able to cross over into the life that Christ has always been inviting him into. And as long as this is a part of his life, he will be found there. And to cross that chasm is no small, quick, easy thing, but it's a continual work and process to find our lives in that place. This is the power and the story of hell for me. This is a strong message and image that Jesus is giving, not for where you might go when you die, but for the kind of life that he's inviting here and now and the strong, hard work, but beautiful outcome of someone that chooses to heed and hear his invitation, to see our neighbors, to care for those around us on every level, those in prison, those in need, those who are strangers, those who are sick, everyone. Which leads me to my last observation with this text and hell. I find it really interesting that this rich man in Jesus' story, he's never asking to get out. He's in anguish. He's in Hades. But we never hear him directly ask to leave. He asks for Lazarus to come to him, to serve him, which we talked about. And he asks to, to send a warning to his family. But there's something subtle in the story about he still believes and thinks that his way of thinking and his lifestyle and choices for how he's choosing to see the world and interact with others is the best way. He doesn't want out. He's there. This is his choice. 
I think it's so important that we all hold beliefs about what we think is the best way. We all hold a view of ourselves and how we interact with the world and people and stuff around us. We all hold a view of outsiders and strangers, refugees, of those in prison, of those who are sick, of those who just can't get a leg up on life, of those who are experiencing a real hell right now. Their life is in the pits. And I know what it's like to think that my beliefs and my way is the best way and the only way and to continue to go down that path no matter the amount of destruction that is brought to myself or to those around me. And there's something really subtle in this story of Jesus and this rich man and Lazarus that that, there's a potential for me to spend eternity continuing to believe that greed, that control, and manipulation are going to get me what I want. That for me to be a bully, for me to have more power and have more people under me, that I'm significant and in control, that that's really what I should be going after. There's a, there's a belief that I can hold that I'm better and I'm more deserving than others of good things. Because look what I've done. And look who I am. And I can spend not just a couple weeks, but years and years and years and eternity in this place and never look up and see the garbage pit that I've created for my life and the garbage pit that I've created of the world around me. And so there's this invitation of Christ and this invitation of scriptures to say, yes, there is a real and physical, literal hell that I can create for how I choose to live my life and how I choose to see others and how I choose to interact with my neighbors and those in need around me. And I have a potential to continue to see my life in that place for eternity. Or I can choose to do this hard, laborious, honestly, work of continually coming back to a story and coming back to a belief system would say that would say there's a better way. There's a more beautiful way to go about this stuff. And it's not found in greed and selfishness and pride and control and manipulation. It's not found in lust. It's not found in more and more and more for me, me, me. It's found in me giving my life for those in need around me. Independent of who they are. Independent of what's brought them to that place. That I've, I work to see them as my neighbor and to care for them. You create the place that you are going to live by how you choose to see yourself and the world around you. And the story of scripture is one that you can create and be a part of this thing known as heaven, or you can create and be a part of this thing known as hell. The choice is yours. And as far as the question of, so what happens when you die? Which is where this whole series kind of started out of is that question. The answer is, I don't know. And I don't know that anybody really knows. But what we know the scriptures invite us to think about and wrestle with is here and now in this moment. 
And what I do know is that maybe there, there is potentially something called eternity. <laughs> that it's something that's a part of my life and my thinking and my psyche and my soul that I think about more than just this life and the 60 to 80 to 90 years that I might have on planet Earth. And so I, want, I think about that and I want to talk about that, yes. And so if I go somewhere when I die to understand that hell is maybe not a place where there's flames and a guy in red tights and a pitchfork, like we've all known. But to look at this biblical idea that hell is a place where these things continue to control and rule, things like greed, selfishness, pride, control, manipulation, lust, they continue to be the story that everybody there is going after, and we're just fighting for more for ourselves and trying to get on top and seeing ourselves as better and more significant and more important than anyone else. That feels like hell. That sounds like hell and the thought of eternity in a place like that. I, I want nothing to do with that. It, that is far scarier than any far side cartoon that I ever saw. And for me to think about a place like heaven, as the scriptures talk about, and to spend eternity in a place where we know each other, we see each other, we care for each other. And things like grace, and peace, and forgiveness are dominant tools and choices of our lives. And there's no needy people in our midst because we all are concerned for everyone on the same level. I'm in. And that feels like heaven. But the choice is, how am I choosing to see my neighbor? How am I choosing to see myself and interact with this stuff? And this is why for us at our Sunday gatherings at CMYK, we always end with communion or the Eucharist, this bread broken and this cup shared. It's an invitation back into this story, back into the story of Christ to give our lives, to sacrifice ourselves for the needs of those around us. It's what we're all about. And to know that that is this creative work and that when we all commune, we all come to this table and partake of this story together, this is what creates beauty. The reason that we're called CMYK, as many of you know, CMYK are the four colors used in the printing process and graphic design. You have cyan, magenta, yellow, and key, or the color black. And these four colors are combined individually to create everything that you see that's printed <laughs> is through CMYK, these four colors. The idea that beauty comes from combining these individual things. And for us, that CMYK is us as individuals choosing to take up this story and to create heaven on earth, choosing to wrestle with these teachings in this life of Christ, believing that there is something to that for how we choose to partake in this body of giving ourselves to those in need around us. So when someone asks me the question, am I trying to live my life free from hell? The answer is yes. But that's not because I'm choosing, I prayed a prayer lots of times when I was a kid going to camp. But it's because I'm choosing to wrestle with how I see myself and my neighbors in the story of Christ. The question of, am I trying to save people from hell? The most honest answer I would have is yes. I'm trying to be a part of this creative work on planet Earth to say the greed and control and selfishness, manipulation, power and being the bully, they, they, they don't help 
and they're not the best, most beautiful way forward. They don't create heaven. They actually create something else, and we find our lives in the pits, in the garbage dumps. And I don't want to find my life or anyone else's life there. So I want to continually invite and be a part of a conversation of seeing my life not there, but in the way, but in a more beautiful way for how I see the world and people around me. I know that that's a lot, (laughs) but I hope it's helpful. And I hope this picture and this image of hell that is more biblical and scriptural than what many of us grew up with would be something that you would find just as motivating, hopefully, just as powerful, and potentially far more beautiful and creative for the here and the now than any guy in red tights could ever be. I love you, and uh, if there's anything that we can do for you, please reach out and let us know.